Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. Listen each week for updated content and be sure to share with your friends. We hope this podcast is a blessing and a resource to you as you pursue God daily. You have your Bibles turned to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. First book in the New Testament. We're in a series called Famous Last Words. Famous Last Words. And we kicked off this series last week, and we talked about the Last Supper. Uh, We were talking about what we're doing is taking the final hours of Jesus while he's on this earth, and we're looking closely at what he says. Because a man's last words carry significant meaning. In fact, all of Jesus' words are profound. But this series, we're drilling down on what he said in those final moments. Uh, we, we journeyed through the Last Supper together, and, and we talked about the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And what I want to do uh, from there is take it in sequential order. So immediately after that dinner was over with, Jesus and his disciples went to the garden. So today, we're going to look at the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the words of Jesus in the garden. They left the upper room once the meal was finished. They went down the steps and through the pathway of the city streets of Jerusalem. Their journey would take them across a small valley called the Kidron Valley, onto the eastern edge of the city of Jerusalem. Right there at the foot of the Mount of Olives, there was a a garden grove, an olive grove, where Jesus spent many, many days. Uh, They had to cross the Kidron Valley. What's interesting, this was during Passover, and so the Kidron Valley would have been bright red with blood because of the sacrifices that the people would bring to the temple. There was actually like a channel from the temple, from the altar of the temple to the Kidron Valley when they would sacrifice the sheep. You know, the blood that would be spilled would flow through this channel directly into that valley. So imagine Jesus on his way to the garden. He crosses that little small valley and he sees it covered with red blood. And I'm sure it served as a very real reminder of the suffering that was ahead. Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. And if you're taking notes, it's also on the app. And so you'll see an outline of what we're going to talk about today. That'll guide our discussion this morning. Matthew 26, verse 36. The scripture says this. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. Verse 37, he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief. Hmm. I want you to circle that phrase in your Bible. My soul is crushed with grief to the very point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then Jesus went a little farther, and he bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, Hmm. aren't you glad that you can call God Father? He's not some distant God. I love the, the personal possessive pronoun, my, my Father. 
That implies relationship. It implies a divine connection. It implies personal experience. Jesus, as we see him about to pour out his heart in prayer, he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Can I have an amen for the reading of the word? This is powerful. This is so powerful. In fact, I want to describe to you, I want to show you, this is actual video footage that I took uh, of the Garden of Gethsemane. When we were in Israel back in uh, probably 2017, there's this garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Jesus often would withdraw to this garden to pray. This was a familiar place to Jesus. In fact, you know, scholars tell us that in this garden, this grove filled with olive trees, that they would take the olives and they would crush them with stones. The the way that they they were able to, to extract the oil from those olives, it had to be crushed. The name Gethsemane, the very name Gethsemane means oil press, you know, where you would under pressure, squeeze those olives, and the precious oil, the pure olive oil, would come forth. That would be the same oil to be used to anoint people, to set people apart for kingdom service. There's a connection between the anointing and crushing. If you're going to operate in the anointing and the presence of God, there's going to be a process where you'll be crushed and broken. Can I have a good amen? The words that Jesus prays in this space, and if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down is this. Jesus says, your will, not mine. Your will, not mine. Jesus, we see this picture that Jesus was surrendered. Gethsemane is a place where serious battle was fought. Not necessarily physically, but emotionally and spiritually. It was symbolic of of deep, pressing pain and mental agony. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a tight place? Have you ever felt just pressed and crushed? Am I talking to anybody right now? You see, I believe that every person here will experience in some way, shape, or form their own Gethsemane. Here's what I love about Jesus. We'll we'll see what he experienced that night, the battle that he fought, the anguish that he carried. I love that Jesus understands everything about our struggles. There is, let let me say it this way. You will never go where Jesus has not already been. Now, this may be new to you. You may be in a season, in a battle, and an experience that's brand new to you, but it's not new to Jesus. You know, what he is walking through here, you you see this picture of Jesus, this vulnerability, the, the humanity of Jesus. He's carrying the weight of the world in this moment. Some of you know what that feels like. You feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Maybe you're fighting a battle right now, and it's something with one of your children. Can I tell you this? Your children can make you incredibly happy, but they can also crush your spirit too. Man, when you have kids, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Come on, talk to me. Brother Wayne always says you're only as happy as your saddest child. 
Maybe some of you today are feeling the weight, the pressing, the crushing of an experience with one of your children. Maybe it's financially. Maybe you're being so squeezed financially. You carry constant stress in your body, wondering how you're going to pay your bills, and wondering where the next meal is going to come from. Maybe there's something on your job. Maybe there's a friendship, relationship that's gotten sideways, and you feel the weight, the crushing pressure of it. Jesus knows what that feels like. And in this moment, he, he prays this prayer. You know what's interesting to me? Jesus had knowledge that, I mean, for 33 years, he knew what was coming. He knew that his time on earth was limited. He knew how he would exit this earth. You know, I had a, a friend who's a licensed counselor, and he, he told me this the other day. He said, knowing doesn't automatically fix all your feelings. Think about it. His whole life, Jesus knew that it would come to this, and yet in Gethsemane, he felt the full weight. The scripture talks about anguish and distress. It literally means this in the Greek, an inescapable unraveling of the soul. The Bible tells us that when he prayed in this moment, it was so intense that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The, the very capillaries in his body exploded and his sweat became blood. That's intense. And yet Jesus pours his heart out to the Father. How many of you know you don't have to hide your emotions or feelings from God? Listen, when you pray... Keep it real. How many of you know we're not going to fake God out? Have you ever tried to pray and, and, and thought that through your prayer you were going to impress God? Or, or have you ever been in a setting where somebody was called upon to pray and you were thinking, man, that was a great performance? Listen, prayer is not performance. You're not going to impress God. You got to pour out your heart in the raw reality of your own personal struggle because he sees he, he, he knows. He cares. Jesus trusted his emotions to the Father, and I want you to know you can do the same. Sometimes the most effective prayers are the ugliest prayers. Man, when you're in the worst of spots. Come on, can somebody help me preach this today? I, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, prayer is never more real than when it comes out of the worst places of our life. Some of the best prayers come from the tightest places. When you're pressed, when you feel the heaviness and the weight, and you pour your heart out to God, Jesus says, my father, if it's possible, can I tell you this? God loved the son so much that there isn't anything he would withhold from Jesus. And Jesus said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. You know what that tells me? It wasn't possible. There was no other way. There was no other way for your sin and my sin to be covered. There was no other way for the debt to be paid. Jesus had to go by way of Calvary. The cross was inescapable. And in that moment, I mean, think of, he says, let this cup. What was he talking about? He wasn't talking about death. He was talking about judgment. 
In the Old Testament, the cup represented the wrath of God. Jesus knew that the wrath of God was going to be poured out on him. That's staggering. That's a big deal. You know why? Because Jesus had done nothing wrong. Guess who's done all the wrong? Me and you. This moment, uh, it wasn't about him as much as it was about what he was doing for you and me. And Jesus feels the weight of it. And he says, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup of suffering pass. But he says these words, not my will, yours be done. I think this is probably the most powerful prayer that you could possibly pray. Your will, not mine. You know what's interesting? At the beginning in the Garden of Eden, you know what Adam and Eve said? My will, not yours. And guess what happened when they said, my will, not yours? Paradise was lost. This garden turned into a desert. And for centuries now, we've been living in this wilderness experience. Yet when Jesus prays, not my will, but yours, the wilderness now becomes a garden again. Eden becomes possible. Everything is reversed because Jesus prayed this prayer of surrender. Somebody say surrender. Oh, surrendering is a big deal. How many of you know we don't like to let things go, do we? Mm-hmm. Oh, y'all being quiet out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When God begins to pry our fingers off the things that we think we control, it's a little vulnerable. Scripture tells us in Luke, Luke twenty two forty three. then the angel of the Lord from heaven came and appeared and strengthened Jesus. It's amazing what happens when you surrender. I want you to write this down, that surrender leads to strength. So there's a divine connection between surrender and strength. When Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours, an angel began to strengthen him. And I want you to know this. When you surrender in your life, it makes room for God's strength to show up. Let me talk to you about surrender just for a little bit. Because there's power. A surrendered life frees the hands of God to move in your life. When you say, not my will, but yours be done, then God says, all right, now I get to do my work in you. You see, as long as we're doing our own thing, it ties the hands of God. How many of you, you want God to reach down and do in your life what you couldn't do your, on your own? Then you've got to let go of what you're holding on to and give it to him. Uh, what are the things that you need to let go of? What are the things that you need to surrender? In fact, the things that we hold on to are the things that we worry about. But the things we surrender are the things God can take care of. Oh, come on now. I'm, I'm trying to help somebody. This is difficult because it's not human nature to let go. We want to possess. We want to cling to. We, we feel a sense of responsibility to manage and control. And, and God says, listen, I'm not going to fight you over this. He's going to let you go ahead. If it's up to you and it's, it's within your grasp and you're going to take care of it, he's going to sit back and just wait. Let me ask you, how's it working out for you? But when you say, Lord, I just can't. I'm done. I've done all I can do. And how many of you know when we've done all we can do, we've probably made a mess of things. 
I've done my very best, and then here's this mess that we've created. Maybe it's in, in our personal life or in our, in our finances or in our children and in our, in our, in our job. Lord, I've done my very best, and I've made a royal mess. God, you take it. Then the hands of God are freed, and he says, you know what? Now, the, this is the window to the supernatural. Surrender invites God in, and it allows him to do what he does best. I remember being in college, and man, I was all about sports, and I was playing basketball on scholarship, and man, I was living my life, been pursuing my dream, and man, things got very difficult for me in college, and I can remember God speaking to me, he says, Mike, I've let you live your whole life doing what you want to do. Now, I want you to spend the rest of your life doing what I want you to do. And it wasn't until I fully surrendered. You see, when you let go and let God, then there is a divine flow of peace that comes to you. You can rest when it's in God's hands. Some of you are not sleeping well at night because just the mental gymnastics and rolling things over and over and you're trying to figure out and you're trying to control. But if you'll just release it and give it to God, you can have rest when you lay your head on your pillow at night. Surrendering a surrendered life, it frees the hands of God to move in you. Let me put it this way. Since I'm using a basketball analogy, if I'm on Michael Jordan's team, let's say it's me and Michael Jordan. He's my teammate against all y'all. I like my chances better than yours. You know why? I got MJ on my team. And here's the game plan. I'm going to dribble, and I'm going to give it to him. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to back out of the play, and I'm going to let Michael be Michael. And he's going to dunk on all y'all. And I'm going to get the W. Why? Because I surrendered to him. See, some of you are hogging the ball of your life. And God said, get, get, hey, I'm open. I'm open. Man, give it to me. I, I don't miss. I, oh, my goodness. I'm losing my belt pack right here. Put the ball in God's hands and let him do what you can't. Can I have a good amen? amen? A surrendered life, it frees the hands of God. But it also, it releases you from having to figure everything out. When your life is fully surrendered, there can be moments and experiences and situations that you don't necessarily have the answers for. And guess what? You don't necessarily need them. You know, when I first became pastor, stepping into this role, I felt a pressure to know everything about everything. Sometimes there's this, this misconception that the pastor is the expert on all things religious. Guess what? I'm learning like you are. And people have questions sometimes, and I never felt comfortable saying, I don't know. But the older I get, the more comfortable I am saying, you know what? I'm not sure. And I'm okay. I don't know, but I trust that he does. I don't have all the answers. I can't figure everything out. Some of you, you need to come to terms with the fact that you just don't have it all figured out. Come on, say this out loud. Say, I don't know. How did that feel? It felt freeing, did it not? You're going to be in situations that you don't necessarily know what to do. Guess what? You trust him. 
I can't figure everything out. I, I, I don't know what the final outcome is going to be. Some of you are trying, oh, this is a word for somebody. This is a word for somebody. Somebody here today is trying to map out like the next six months. Where am I going to be next year? Nothing wrong with having a plan. But I want to tell you this. Life is what happens to you when you have something else planned. And you're obsessing over outcomes, trying to figure it out, and God's saying, trust me, rest in me. You may not know, but I do. And the Bible says the steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord, and God delights in every detail of his life. Though he stumbles, he will not fall, for God would uphold him by his strong right hand. David said, I once was young, but now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's seed begging for bread. Come on, put your hands together if you believe that today. Somebody say, I don't know, but he does. Oh, you know what? A surrendered life, it keeps you, write this down, it keeps you from becoming bitter. Come on, talk to me. Some of you are, are, are borderline bitter. Maybe they just say full-blown bitter. Let's just call it what it is. Because hard circumstances can create a hardened heart. And if you've been hurt, I'm telling you, how you process pain when you're surrendered to God is the difference between being bitter and being better. When your life is surrendered to the Almighty, you're going to walk through some painful moments that you may not understand, but because you trust the redeeming hand of God, he can turn that pain into eternal purpose. This is what we see. The cross is looming in front of Jesus. He's saying, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. God, I want your purposes to prevail. Some of you are having to carry your own cross right now. Don't become bitter because it's hard. Trust that God will redeem it. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. The Bible doesn't say all things are good, but the Bible says God can take bad things and work them for our good. Lord, I don't understand what I'm walking through right now. I don't understand why this person left my life or why they're creating all the, they're lying about me, man. They're, they're, they're trying to sabotage my success. They're trying to hold me down. Lord, I don't understand why this has happened, but God, I trust you because my life is not my own. I'm surrendered to the, to the hand of a sovereign God. Can I have a better amen? Listen, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God can't sustain you. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my, my marriage, my children, my future? You'll find the answer to God's will in daily surrender. You see, if God expected absolute surrender from Jesus, then he expects nothing less from you and me. Number one, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was surrendered. Look at what it says in verse 40, Matthew 26, verse 40. Then Jesus returned to the disciples and he found them asleep. Come on, the most important moment in Jesus' ministry, and they're sleeping. He says to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Come on, some of us have a hard time praying for five minutes, much less than an hour. Can you watch one hour, Peter? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing, 
Oh, but that flesh, come on, somebody. The flesh is weak. Number two, Jesus says, keep watch and pray. Not only was he surrendered, but Jesus was seeking. He was pursuing the Father. He was searching God in his most difficult moments. Interesting how Jesus left most of the disciples in one part of the garden, and then he brings Peter, James, and John. Those are his boys. Man, that's his inner circle. Man, if you're part of the inner three, that's a big deal, man. Obviously, Jesus, man, he invites you into the most vulnerable areas of his life, and Jesus comes back and he finds them sleeping. How, how, how do you fall asleep? How do you sleep? First, you got to get still. Quiet. You get comfortable. Close your eyes. Starts to get dark. Then you're out. You know, it's funny because... I see you every Sunday. And there are pockets of people. <laughs> it is awesome. I mean, for real. I know. I see sections in this, in this arena right now. And I know, I know who you are. <laughs> I do. It is, I love you. Listen, I know. You probably did shift work, man. The, the baby was crying all last night. You get really still. You get comfortable, oh, and, and you want me to think that you're praying. I know. I know. Oh, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, I pray. Amen. Have you ever fallen asleep at, 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 the, at the most inopportune times? You, you, your body just couldn't hold out any longer. Je Jesus needed these guys to really dig in with him. And when, 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 when he was digging in in prayer, they were just kind of nestled in. Man, they, they just finished the Passover. Man, a big meal. I got pita and hummus in my belly. A little wine, man. I just, I'm laid back. They're in chill mode. And, and here Jesus, he's in this epic battle wrestling. And he's saying, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, couldn't you just wait one hour? You, you, you couldn't tarry with me one hour? They needed an alarm clock. How many of you, you have an alarm clock that, that wakes you up every day? How many of you are, my body is to the age now, I don't need an alarm clock. How many of you, your body wakes itself up with or without an alarm clock? For those of you who set alarms, how many of you, like if you need to get up at, like you know the, 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 the deadline, the latest you can possibly stay in bed is 6.30, but you will set your alarm for six and you will snooze it and you feel like you're cheating it a little bit, like, hey, ah, ha, ha, ha. When your alarm first goes off, because, I mean, it arrests you out of sleep, right? And then you, oh, I'm going to press snooze. I'm going to sleep. How many of you, you feel like, how many of you set an alarm early so you can snooze it two or three times before you got to get up? See, I don't understand you people. And I'll throw my wife under the bus because she's one of you. And that thing will go off, and she'll press snooze, and, and nine minutes later, it's going off again. Nine minutes later, it's going off again. I'm like, baby, broken sleep is horrible sleep. Come on. When my alarm goes off, in fact, if I, I normally beat my alarm, but if it, if it goes off when I'm up, I'm up. Hit the ground running. 
Jesus was the alarm clock for these disciples. He was their wake-up call. Can I tell you, all throughout scriptures, you can see God's alarm clocks through the prophets. He sent the prophets to the nation of Israel to say, wake up. Sometimes he would send a plague to the nation of Israel and say, wake up. Sometimes he allows pain in our lives so we will wake up. Jesus is saying, hey, don't sleep. Man, the hour is late. The time is urgent. I believe God is trying to arouse a sleeping church. God is is speaking to his people saying, wake up, be alert, watch and pray for the time is coming to an end. Don't be asleep. Why is this important? When you watch, it means to be spiritually alert. Man, we've got to we got to awaken from the comfort and the routines. God is trying to get some of your attention in here today. God is using this word, and he speak, maybe there's something that's happening in your life right now, and it's uncomfortable because he's trying to wake you up. The most significant moment in Jesus' ministry and his closest allies are asleep. He says, watch. That means to be spiritually alert. But then he says, pray. That means to be spiritually dependent. You know, we, man, I am running out of time. My goodness. Let me ask the band to come up. My goodness. Running out of time. Somebody like, okay. Are we going there? All right. Some of you woke up for the first time all message long. Rachel and I went with some friends Friday night to Alexandria, to the Pentecostals of Alexandria. I don't know if you've ever heard of that church or or been connected to any of their ministry, but they do an Easter presentation every year, uh, and it's it's a passion play, and it is amazing. I mean, Tony, Julie, it it is amazing. I I think I cried. I mean, I know you're going to find this hard to believe. I cried wept. I literally had a wad of tissue by the end of the night, just overwhelmed with what Jesus did for me. And I would see these images of Jesus, I mean, this bloodied, and we'll talk about words from the cross next Sunday. We'll talk about that. But I would see images of Jesus, this suffering Savior, as he hung on that cross and think, Lord, you did it for me. God, you sent heaven's best. And you took the very worst of my life. And you washed me and you cleansed me. And it, it's, it's overwhelming to think about how God could be so good. And afterwards, we were talking to some of the team. It's amazing. Again, amazing presentation. Worship, it's it's like the worship we're used to here. I mean, just the best of the best. The visual presentation of of the love of Jesus, it it touched every heart. We were talking to some of them afterwards, and they were talking about how they've been doing this presentation since 1983, so for decades. But I learned something about the church that really, it it spoke to me in a deep way. At the Pentecostals of Alexandria, they have had 24-hour prayer 
24 hours a day, seven days a week in the church for 52 years. I'm not, and again, every hour on the hour, somebody is praying. And listen, don't think for a second. Don't minimize prayer for a second. When we pray, God moves. Jesus tells his disciples, watch and pray. There's a portal. I'm telling you, prayer moves the hands that move the world. And if we just knew the, 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 the impacts, the significance of what our prayers produce, we would pray more. Because when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. He tells his disciples, watch and pray. And then here comes Judas. Here comes a contingency of temple guards and Roman soldiers. And Jesus steps up in this moment. He, he didn't cower. He wasn't afraid. He was filled with power from on high because when there's surrender, God gives strength. He stepped up into that moment and says, who are you looking for? Listen, none of the gospel writers portray Jesus as a victim. Though he was surrendered, he was also sovereign. Every single moment of that experience was under the control of God Almighty. He was sovereign. Who are you looking for? We're, we're looking for this man named Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? I am he. I am. Come on, somebody say, I am. Why is that a big deal? You remember Moses in the burning bush? Exodus chapter 3. How did God reveal himself to Moses on Mount Sinai? Oh, 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 well, Lord, who are you? He says, I am that I am. When Jesus says, I am he, it's a reference back to the original where God first revealed himself to Moses. You see, just as God was, Jesus was God expressed in the flesh. And the Bible says that, that well, there, there, there were hundreds of soldiers. I don't know how big the crowd was, but they fell back as soon as he said, I am he. Whew, they just couldn't take it. That's power. And when you surrender to the Lord, and when you seek the Lord, you have the sovereign power of God at your disposal. Amen. You receive that today. Come on, put your hands together. You believe that. Thank you for listening. Take a moment and subscribe so you can become a part of the community here and stay up to date with what is happening at Healing Place Church. For more information about HPC, visit HealingPlaceChurch.org.